Hello and welcome. Thanks for clicking on this episode. You're listening to Retold, a podcast where I review and analyze modern retellings of ancient Greco-Roman history and mythology. I'm your host, Sophia, and in this episode, I'm covering the myth of the Trojan War. Episode 1 of Season 1 of Retold, The Trojan War, Told. So, hello everyone. Um, welcome back to Retold. Um, if you haven't already listened to my announcement episode, or I'm not really sure what I called it, maybe, I guess it's, maybe I called it the trailer, or the introduction, or something similar to that, the episode that comes before this. Um, I released it a few days before I release, I'm releasing this episode, and, um, I know it, it, it looks long and very, um, maybe a little daunting. It is an hour long, (laughs) um, but I do talk about some stuff that, um, I think is necessary information to kind of navigate this, to kind of understand how I'm, the layout of this podcast. So please, if you haven't done that yet, go and listen to that episode. Um, it's a very long-winded episode, which is kind of just, there's a lot of tangents and stuff. So, um, yeah, if you find any parts, like, boring, you can just skip that part and then skip to the important things. Um, I'm trying in this episode to be more I guess, straightforward, less tangents, more organization, um, so yeah, we'll see how it goes. Um, so today I'm going to be talking, like I said, about the original myth of the Trojan War, and, um, before I kind of go into the actual events of the Trojan War, I wanted to talk more about the origins of the Trojan War, the events that, in mythology, that led up to it. Um, For anyone who doesn't know, the Trojan War was a war that happened in Greek mythology. It's kind of debated how, whether it was, it actually happened or not in, in, in history, but, um, either way, it's, a war that happened between the Greeks and the Trojans, and the Trojans were basically the inhabitants of a s- probably a mythical city called Troy. Um, yeah, again, Tro- the existence of Troy is also something that's kind of it's iffy whether it really existed in any capacity or not. And there are a lot of retellings of the Trojan War, which is why I thought that this would be a really good intro, like, first topic. It would be a good topic for the first season. Um, yeah, and a lot of those retellings also include details about the events, the events that I'm going to be covering 
that led up to the Trojan War. So that's kind of another reason why I'm going to be covering those events. And those three events are also talked about by a lot of different ancient authors, but I'm kind of, there are two sources that I'm really relying on for these uh, lead-up events, and those are Hyginus's Fabulae, and Hyginus was a Latin, sorry, a Roman author writing in Latin, of course, roughly around the first century AD. Um, and Fabulae, for anyone who doesn't speak Latin, I mean, I feel like you can kind of assume, but Fabulae is the Latin for, I guess, I mean, I learned it as just stories, but, um, Fabulae is often translated, the title of this work is often translated into fables, so I guess you could just, yeah, it's something of that, uh, vein. And the other source that I'm using for these stories is Pseudo Apollodorus's Bibliotheca. So, Pseudo Apollodorus is basically some Greek dude writing in Greek, and he wrote around the same time as Hyginus. And the Bibliotheca, that means library, um, both the Bibliotheca and uh, Hyginus's Fabulae are kind of just collections of small, of really small passages about different myths. Um, yeah, and I, they're really good sources just in general because they just cover so many different myths and they're really, they don't, they summarize everything really succinctly. Um, and not, you know, they don't try to be too poetic. They're straightforward, and they get, they give you all the information you need. So, yeah, I think that's why I'm using them, basically, uh, because they're easy to consume, and they're really informative and useful. Um, but obviously these aren't the most, the oldest texts I probably could have used, um, so take take that put, keep that in mind. Um, I will be using older texts later in this episode for the actual Trojan War. So I'll just you know start talking about the actual myth now. So the first of the events that kind of leads up to the Trojan War is the suitors of Helen, and Helen was just this queen of Sparta. Um, her well, she's not. I guess she's not queen yet. Um, she's a princess of Sparta. Her dad is. Her well, I guess her stepdad Tyndarius is the king of Sparta. Her actual father is Zeus, the king of the gods, and that's because that's a whole nother story. But basically, Zeus turned into a swan, assaulted Leta, her mom, and out came Helen and her other brother. Um, they also have another sister and brother, and those those four are the four siblings. Those four siblings specifically are all like really important figures in mythology, I would say. Um, I do think that Tyndarius and Leonard have other children, but those other children just aren't that important. Um, so Helen is like super beautiful. Like she is the most beautiful woman in the world, probably because of her divine blood from Zeus. Um, and because she's, you know, she's really beautiful, obviously, again, she's literally the most beautiful woman in the world. And also, 
you know, she's the princess of an important kingdom. Um, so, you know, her... I don't, I don't know if I should cover this or not. I'll just be brief about it. In this time, Greece is not, like, one country. It's a lot of different small kingdoms. So each, like, city would be a kingdom of itself. They'd call it a city-state. Kind of like the um, Italian ones in the Renaissance. Um, and so these Greek city-states would be making alliances left and right, having wars with each other left and right. Um, they really didn't feel much loyalty with between them at all because they didn't really see themselves as one big country. Obviously, they were they spoke the same language and they were culturally similar. They had the same religion. Um, they you know they followed the same mythology. But again, politically, they were not they were not one united whole. But during the Trojan War, they are, which this is kind of the reason why this story. So. Um, so basically what happens is, um, she's, obviously she's beautiful, she's a princess of an important city, um, so a lot of people want to marry her. Uh, there's like, whenever, um, a source talks about the suitors of Helen, they always, like, give you a list of names that came to win Helen's hand in marriage and it's like 20 people or something um and these are all like the kings of Greece or either the kings or if the, uh, the king is married already there his son maybe comes uh pretty much all of the important um a member of every single important royal family in Greece comes to vie for the hand, for Helen's hand in marriage. Um, but now there's kind of a problem because, I mean, the ancient Greeks didn't practice polygamy. That just wasn't a thing they did. So, yeah, I mean, Helen can't marry all of these, these men who have come to, uh, win her hand in marriage. So Tyndarius has to choose one of these men. Um, as Pseudo-Apollodorus says, you know, this becomes a problem for him. He cannot decide. Uh, in Bibliotheca, Pseudo-Apollodorus says that seeing the multitude of them, Tyndarius feared that the preference of one might set the others quarreling. But Ulysses promised that if he would help him win the hand of Penelope, he would suggest a way by which there would be no quarrel. And when Tyndarius promised to help him, Ulysses told him to exact an oath from all the suitors that they would defend the favored bridegroom against any wrong that might be done him in respect of his marriage. On hearing that, Tyndarius put the suitors on their oath, and while he chose Menelaus to be the bridegroom of Helen, he solicited Acarius to bestow Penelope on, on Ulysses. That is a passage that there's a lot um so ulysses first of all you're gonna s you see this name a lot in translations of ancient texts what they mean by ulysses is odysseus i'm not really sure why they use ulysses because i'm pretty sure ulysses is the latin form of odysseus i'm pretty sure apollodorus wouldn't have used 
the name Ulysses because Ulysses, again, was the Latin. Um, I'm 90% sure of that. Now I have to look it up. Right. Odysseus, also known by the Latin variant Ulysses. So, yeah, I don't know why um, this translator would have translated... I'm assuming that Apollodorus would have put um, the original Greek name, but yeah, yeah, I'm not really sure why, why that they call him Ulysses, but they do. Um, and so what this passage is telling us is Tyndarius did not want to choose. He couldn't choose between all the suitors because he knew that, you know, these are powerful men. They basically rule all of Greece. These people combined have the power of all of Greece behind them because, again, they're all kings and princes, etc. They have militaries. And Tyndarius is afraid that, you know, if he chooses one of these, anyone he chooses might make the others mad and they might either fight amongst themselves right here and now or, you know, who knows? Maybe they'll come after Tyndarius's kingdom. Uh, even Sparta can't with with withstand the the anger of literally everyone else in Greece. So he's like, oh my, what what am I supposed to do? I mean, Helen needs a husband because naturally, but that was sarcasm, by the way. Um, but like whoever I choose. I'm going to be stuck in a bad position because everyone else will be mad at me. And Odysseus comes and is like, my dude, I have, have I got a solution for you? Um, but before I tell you that, because, you know, if you don't know this, Odysseus is, he's known for being like a really smart dude. He's a hero. He's considered a hero, but he's one of the very few heroes that is really well known for his smarts and his cleverness um and you see the him defeat a lot of uh adversaries by using his wits which is not super common among ancient greek heroes um uh, mythological heroes so yeah I, I just think that's interesting um so what he does is he makes he has this knowledge, and, you know, knowledge is power, so he's like, um, Tyndarius, I will tell you what to do, and it will, it's a genius plan, but before I tell you, you will need to give me something in return. I know I've come to, you know, get Penelope's hand in marriage, but, you know, I'm the king, I'm the prince of not a really huge place, he's just the king of, he's just the son of the king of some random little island, Ithaca, and out of all of these men, like, I doubt Tyndarius would have chosen Odysseus anyway, even if he hadn't given Penelope to Odysseus, but based, so, we don't really know, who knows, maybe he would have chosen, um, maybe he would have chosen Odysseus to marry Helen, again, I feel like that's unlikely, but regardless, Odysseus is like, I'll, t you know, I, I'm not going to compete against all these other people. How about you, in exchange for my knowledge, you give me your niece, Penelope. And Penelope, 
like I said, is Tyndarius's niece. She already has a father. So, according to, like, you know, you're supposed to ask the father's blessing, right? So, I don't really know why he's asking Tyndarius this. Um, it says later that Tyndarius solicited Acarius to bestow Penelope on, Odys- on Ulysses. Um, so, I'm... So, you know, I feel like this is kind of not a foolproof plan, because what if Acarius, that's Penelope's dad, what if Acarius just refused? Because he's not bound by this oath. Tyndarius just promised to give Odysseus someone who he doesn't have the power to give him. I don't really understand this, but I guess Ulysses... Sorry, why am I saying Ulysses? I have never before in my life said Ulysses instead of Odysseus. But whoever translated this is making me question myself. Anyway, regardless of, you know, the logistics, Ulysses, oh my god, that is, I hate, I hate that. Um, Odysseus gets Penelope as his wife, and Tyndarius gets Odysseus' plan, and that plan is that Tyndarius will, before he chooses Helen's suitor, he will make everyone else in the room promise to support Helen's marriage, no matter who he chooses. So then, you know, like, if they swear, then they can't, you know, they can't break their promise. They, they'll, then nothing will happen to Tyndarius, you know, there won't be any fighting, because everyone has already promised to support Helen. Um, and they do that. And, to be honest, I feel like this plan wasn't one that took much thought. I feel like Tyndarius probably could have come up with this by himself, but apparently not. Um, I guess Tyndarius wasn't the sharpest tool in the box. No one ever said he was, um, but whatever. Uh, so yeah, everyone swears to uphold Helen's marriage and support it in any way, in every way they can, before Tyndarius, cho- Tyndarius, is, Tyndarius chooses, and he ends up choosing Menelaus. And Menelaus is an interesting choice, to say the least. He's um, He was a prince of Mycenae, which is the most powerful city in Greece. But he, first of all, he wasn't the oldest prince, so he never would have really inherited, he never would have inherited the throne. And second of all, he was, like, he was exiled at this time. Like, he, people had over, his uncle, I believe, overthrew his father or something, and so he didn't really, he wasn't technically the prince anymore. He was in exile with his brother, Agamemnon. Um, so, again, this is a kind of a weird choice on Tyndarius' part, in my opinion, because, like, you know, if you're wanting to use your extremely desired, highly desired, um, daughter as a bargaining chip, then why, why give her, why have her marry someone who is, has no real power right now? It doesn't make much sense to me and even if they won back um Mycenae like even if Agamemnon and Menelaus defeated their uncle and um got back Mycenae which spoiler they do eventually um like 
even then Agamemnon is going to become king. And also, not to mention a third a third aspect of this is that Agamemnon is already married to Helen's sister Clytemnestra. So, really this this wasn't like if you're trying to use Helen as a bargaining, you know, like as a way to get an alliance, I feel like you probably should have chosen someone else. But again, maybe Tyndarius just isn't the sharpest crayon in the box, and that's fine. Uh, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with being a little bit dumb sometimes. So, yeah. Um, that's kind of the end of the Suitors of Helen story. Uh, Helen and Menelaus get married. They have... I think they're married for about ten years before the start of the Trojan War. Um, they have a daughter. Her name is Hermione. Um, yeah. I, like, I feel like I should say something about how Hermione is also the name of another person who is pretty famous. Not a real one, but another character in literature that is famous, but I, I don't know. Anything I would say is, would just sound awkward. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think I need to acknowledge that, except for the fact that I just did, um, that I just already did acknowledge that. We're moving on. Um, they also have a, like, a, a son, I guess, but he's not really that important, so I'm not even gonna tell you his name, like, I don't even remember his name, and I didn't, you know, he's just not important. So, yeah, they're married, they have, um, eventually Helen's brothers die, and then Menelaus becomes the heir to the throne of Sparta through his marriage to Helen. Um, yeah, Agamemnon also gets his kingdom back, and he becomes king of Mycenae. Clytemnestra, his wife, and also Helen's half-sister, um, they, they become king and queen. And also, and that's, this is really the most important part of the story, by the end of this, almost everyone in Greece is united behind Helen and Menelaus' marriage. And that, that is going to come, come back into play very soon. Because, again, like, like I said, there is a reason why the Trojan War is basically the only time ever in mythology where the entirety of Greece is united. Um, I'll just leave it at that. I'm trying to do some dramatic foreshadowing, but uh, it's not really working, I feel. <laughs> Next event. And this one is something... It doesn't really have a name. I'm just calling it the Birth of Paris because, again... It doesn't really have... I don't know another name for it. So, Paris, not the city, the dude, he is a... He was a prince of Troy. Um, if you'll remember, Troy is, you know, the titular, you know, that's what the Trojan War is named after, and that is the other side of the Trojan War across from the Greeks. So, Troy is who the Greeks fight during the Trojan War. Um, and Paris is one of the princes. So the king and queen of Troy are a couple, you know, kings and queens are usually couples. Um, the king and queen of Troy are Priam is the king and Hecuba is the queen. And they have a lot of children. Um, I think it said somewhere that uh, 
Priam had either 50 sons and 50 daughters, or he just had 50 children. Though I'm pretty sure it was 50 sons and 50 daughters. Of course, not not all of these were um, from from Hecuba, uh, because I don't think that's like possible. Like, if you think about how long a woman is typically fertile for, is it possible to have 50, is it possible to have 100 children from one woman? Well, I don't know. If you factor in, you know, quadruplets, quintuplets maybe, do those exist? I don't know. This is so off track. Um, so Paris is one of their children. Um, according to Pseudo Apollodorus, he's their second son, uh, and before Hecuba gives birth to Paris, she has a dream. Um, according to Pseudo Apollodorus, again, um, Hecuba dreamed that she had brought forth a firebrand and that this, the fire spread over the whole city and burned it. When Priam learned of the dream from Hecuba, he sent for his son Asacus, for he was an interpreter of dreams. Having been taught by his mother's father, he declared that the child was begotten to be the ruin of his country and advised that the babe should be exposed. When the babe was born, Priam gave it to a servant to take and expose on Ida. Now the servant was named Agelaus. Exposed by him, the infant was nursed for five days by a bear, and when he found it safe, he took it up, carried it away, brought it up as his own son on the farm, and named him Paris. So, yeah. Before you be, be t before you're too horrified by this, um, by this. Actually, maybe I should explain what what everything in this passage means first. So basically, what Pseudo Apollodorus is saying is that um, Hecuba has a dream. Paris's mother has a dream before he's born that he he's some sort of, he causes some sort of fire, or, I don't really know what brought forth a firebrand really means, but regardless, she dreams of Troy on fire, and, um, her husband asks, uh, their son, um, who I guess can interpret dreams somehow, um, for advice as to what this means and his son says that the child is going to destroy Troy basically and Priam what Priam does is he exposes Paris and before we go on just the exposure thing I need to talk about it real quick um, so in ancient Greece and Rome they had this really disturbing custom where they called exposure and that was basically where they would if they didn't want if they had a baby that they didn't want they basically were like welp um i can't exactly kill this child myself because it's like improper or you know immoral or something so what i'm gonna do instead is i'm just going to leave this baby out in the wilderness to die. Whether that be from starvation, thirst, weather, 
I don't think weather counts. Cold? I don't know. Um, freezing to death, I guess. Wild animals, whatever. You know, most babies won't just be able to survive in the wilderness by themselves. And as horrible as it is, it happened really often, apparently. Like, regularly in ancient Rome, if the family didn't want, for example, baby girls, they preferred sons. So sometimes if they're, they, had, they gave birth to a girl, they would just leave her to die. And it also happens a lot in mythology. This is a this is a plot device that's really, really common in Greek mythology. Um, it happens to, obviously, Paris. It happens to Atalanta. It happens to Oedipus. It happens to, I guess you could say, it happens to um, Perseus to a degree. Um, he does it, he, he, I mean, I guess his mother is exposed along with him, so it isn't really technically exposure because he still has an adult with him but also they're not able to like get resources and actually survive and we'll get to uh, Perseus some other at some later date um but basically this concept of exposing a baby and then the baby is rescued by either a wild animal a shepherd or basically a god those are the three that are the most common for some reason don't ask me why shepherds are so common i don't know um but my point is this is a plot device that's used really often because because a lot of the time um myths start off with a prophecy and so it's often that the child is just like something is going to happen that the child will um oh it also happened to Heracles did it not yeah Heracles did that it happened to um Heracles's mom did that too and by the and that's um Heracles is the greek name for Hercules that's Hercules is the latin version of the name um as I was saying, it's like a really common plot device to make it so that you have this prophecy in the beginning, so you kind of know what's going to happen, but you don't necessarily know how it's going to happen. It's, I, didn't that also happen in like Macbeth or something? So Shakespeare used it as well. Um, I guess it's really good for drama or something. And then what would happen was that the baby's parents usually would want it to die because they don't want the prophecy to come true and then you know they don't actually kill it so the baby doesn't end up dying but they think it's dead um oh it also happened with um romulus and that's in roman mythology um according to wikipedia this also happened to jesus christ um personally i don't i'm not familiar I'm not as familiar with Jesus Christ as I am with the other figures that I mentioned, so take that with a grain of salt. If you're an expert, please let me know if that's true. But regardless, um, so Paris gets exposed in the wilderness, and then I guess he gets rescued by a bear um, for five days, and then the dude who exposed him finds him again some reason for some reason um and he raises him as his own son as a shepherd 
Oh, it doesn't actually say in here that he's a shepherd. I guess he's a farmer. But he also defends the flocks, so I don't know. Anyway, he's some sort of farmer slash shepherd slash something like that. And then it says not long afterwards he discovered his parents. So I'm assuming that means Paris, by the end of the story, knows that he's a prince. It doesn't tell us how he discovered his parents. And I tried desperately to find a source that does tell us that, but I could not find one. If you know a source that tells us how Paris found out that he was a prince, please do tell. Um, because I definitely, I, I, I was at a loss for how, um, how he found this out. But anyway, so that's the end of Paris's little story. We'll come back to him soon, but, um, for now, I'm gonna go on to the third little event, and that is the wedding of Thetis and Peleus. Um, so Thetis is a Nereid. And that's a sea nymph. Um, alternatively, she's called a sea goddess, but really, I think I would consider her a nymph because she doesn't have dominion over any specific anything. And he's she's also like her sisters are all nereids. Her sister the her sisters the other nereids are all considered nymphs. So I personally don't see why she would be a goddess. Then again, the divide between goddesses and nymphs in mythology seems really unclear to me, regardless, in general. So, yeah. Um, she's a divinity. <laughs> she's a sea divinity. Um, and according to Hyginus, uh, Hyginus's fabulae, a prediction about Thetis the Nereid was that her son would be greater than his father. Since no one but Prometheus knew this, and Jove wished to lie with her, Prometheus promised Jove that he would give him timely warning if he would free him from his chains. And before I go on with that quote, just want to explain that real quick because I feel like this passage in particular has a lot of things that I need to explain. So Prometheus is was a titan, and titans are kind of like gods before the gods there were two titans were titans are basically gods but they are they were like the generation of gods before zeus who is you know the king of the gods and um his father Kronos, was a titan and he was the original king of the titans and then zeus and his siblings eventually murdered their father because he tried to murder them um it's a whole it's a whole nother story um but what you need to know is that prometheus was spared during that war there was a war between the titans and the gods so that the gods would um take over but prometheus was on the side of the gods because prometheus is like prometheus is a word that means basically it means forethought and he's also the titan of forethought. Um, so I guess he was just... He either was really smart or he genuinely had, like, prophetic abilities or something. Or he basically he knew a lot of things. And he was also famous for making the humans. And he was kind of... He really liked the humans, I guess. So, like, he, he advocated for us. 
and he did a lot of th- things for the humans that Zeus didn't necessarily like, and he suffered for it. And what happened was Prometheus got punished for um, go for disobeying disobeying Zeus and giving fire to the humans. And he what happened was he was chained to a mountain, and Zeus sent an eagle to eat his liver out every single day, and you know, since he's immortal, it just regenerates every single day, and yeah, that's just his fate. But what Hyginus is telling us is that Prometheus is the only one who, oh, by the way, Jove is Zeus. Jove is the Latin name for Zeus. I mean, it actually does make sense in this case that, you know, every whoever's translating this is translating everything in latin for in the latin names because you know hygienist was uh was writing in latin but i think that not very many people know the name jove actually and this is a huge sidetrack but the word jupiter who people people normally think that the latin version of zeus is jupiter jupiter is actually a word it was kind of a title for jove and it came from the words Jove and Pater, which means father. So it basically is like Father Zeus. That's what Jupiter means. Um, you can thank my Latin teacher for that knowledge. <laughs> um, so basically, Jove or Jupiter wants, or Zeus, I guess, wants to... Whether, I mean... Hygienist makes it seem like he wants to just copulate <laughs> with her, but um, I think other sources say that she was, yeah, Apollodorus actually says that he and Poseidon, another god, um, they had both courted her, so I'm not sure if he wanted to marry her or not. Um, I'm assuming he would have already been married, so it does make more sense if he just wants to have some fun times with her, but who knows. So, basically, Prometheus is like, I'm gonna, I'm, I don't know how he would have promised this, but he, he basically keeps this knowledge from Zeus, and then tells him that if he frees him from his eagle torture, then he'll tell him something that he really needs to know, I guess. And, Hygienist goes on to say, And so when the promise was given, he advised Jove not to lie with Thetis, for if one greater than he were born, he might drive Jove from his kingdom, as he himself had done to Saturn. And so Thetis was given in marriage to Peleus, son of Iacchus. So, another thing that I didn't mention in that little analysis was that um, the first sentence of this entire quote was that Thetis's son was destined to be greater than his father. So Prometheus is basically telling Jupiter or Zeus or Jove that you can't marry her or copulate with her or whatever. Um, whatever happens, you cannot be the father of her child. Uh, because he's going to be more powerful than you if that happens. And you can't have that because, you know, you overthrew your father because you were more powerful than him do you really want that to happen to you and Zeus is like obviously not so I guess inevitably I mean I don't really know why this happens but 
Zeus gives Thetis to Peleus, and Peleus is just a mortal dude. Like, he's not even a god. He's not divine at all. He's literally just a mortal king of some kingdom in Greece, and it's not even an important one. It's just, like, some little backwater of Greece. I don't... It's in Thessaly. Um, it's named Thaya, P-H-T-H-I-A. Um... I don't know why this happens yet again like I just don't understand why this happens because a I feel like Zeus he's not her father like why does he have the right to tell her who to marry um and why does she need to be married to anyone at all and if she does need to be married to someone why would she be married to a human because I don't think there's any other as far as I know there's no other instance of a goddess marrying or a god any sort of divinity marrying well actually that's not true nymphs marry mortal men a lot of the time and also like river gods will marry um women i think but like the major i don't know i guess it's because i i've always thought i've always seen thetis as kind of like a more important deity like as more of like a real goddess rather than just a nymph but i guess it does make sense but either way it still doesn't make sense why she has to marry him like she clearly doesn't want this as evidenced by a future quote that i'm going to use um so why and zeus doesn't he's not even related to her i mean all the gods are related but they're related very distantly, so I don't really understand why she... He feels the need to marry her off. Regardless, um, that quote I was going to talk about. Um, this one is back to Pseudo-Apollodorus, and what he says about... Um, what he says about this marriage between Thetis and Peleus does not make me like Peleus that much, um, according to Pseudo-Apollodorus. Chiron, therefore, having advised Peleus to seize her and hold her fast in spite of her shape-shifting, he watched his chance and carried her off, and though she turned now into fire, now into water, and now into a beast, he did not let her go till he saw that she had resumed her former shape. And he married her on Pelion, and there the gods celebrated the marriage with feast and song. So, what this is telling me is that Chiron, and for anyone who doesn't know, Chiron is a centaur. Someone who, is his upper body is a human, and his lower body is a horse's. And he's considered the best, the only good centaur, because all the other centaurs are trashy, um, and aren't into consent. Um, he's also known for being someone who, he's like the trainer of the heroes. Um, he trained Jason, famously. He also trained Achilles, famously, who we'll get to later. Um, we'll get to momentarily, actually, it won't be that long. But he trained a lot of folks who grew up to be really important heroes. Um, and I guess he's also he also knows Peleus because he's giving him advice. 
and that is some really crappy advice. And I'm beginning to not like Chiron. I, before, I was just kind of apathetic towards him, but now I'm like, Chiron, you are your advice is terrible. If I asked you for advice, I would rather, yeah, I would, yeah. No one should ever ask for Chiron's advice again because what he's telling Peleus to do is to basically kidnap Thetis through brute force, then, yeah, and then wrestle her into submission when she tries to escape, and then they get married. Great start to a relationship, I'm sure. I mean, the more I read this, it's just the, the more infuriating it become it seems like the more infuriated i get because it's just like who gave you the right i mean regardless of who you are and who she is you know sexual assault is never okay but it's just so like you're some no nobody from the backwaters you're some nobody mortal from the backwaters of greece and this is a literal goddess and you think you have the right to to her like I to her body I don't understand what happened to honoring the gods like it genuinely does not make sense I cannot think of a single I mean of course obviously even if he was a human she was a human or even if he was god she was a human this often this actually often happens in Greek mythology it's never okay but it's just so it it's an outlier and it's an outlier that like surprises me because I don't think in any other myth that I know of has a mortal ever successfully assaulted a god, sexually assaulted a god. Not that I can think of. This is just shocking. I just don't understand. Why did you think you could do this? Anyway, summary, more of the story is that Peleus is terrible. Chiron is terrible. Zeus is terrible, but we already knew that. Um, yeah, everyone here is terrible. Prometheus, just kind of apathetic towards him. He hasn't done anything really wrong. Um, but you know what, Prometheus, you're terrible too, because you should have just let his son kill him. Like, you should have just let Zeus be overthrown. Maybe the next one would have been better. Regardless, this this story makes me so angry whenever I remember it. Because it's just like, what made you think that you could do this? Genuinely, what made you think you could do this? Whatever. Anyway. Peleus, just go die. Like, just go die right now. I don't understand why you still are living. I mean, he's not. But <laughs> why do you live for so long? So anyway... They get married after this for because again this is a great start to a relationship. Um, what happens is they have a wedding, and Zeus marries everyone to this wedding. Again, I don't really see why this is. It's his right to dole out the invitations. You would think that that was the bride's duty, but I suppose not. I I suppose. I suppose not. Um, yeah, I just don't, I don't understand. Um, Hygienist says that Jove is said to have invited to the wedding of Peleus and Thetis 
all the gods except Eris or Discordia. When she came later and was not admitted to the banquet, she threw an apple through the door, saying that the fairest should take it. And this is where the story becomes important to the plot. Um, because what what Hygienus is saying in his fabuli is that Jove or Zeus or Jupiter has invited literally every god to this wedding except for a goddess named Eris. And Eris is the goddess of discord and strife. So basically suffering and chaos, you would think you would invite her because like honestly honestly i do not blame eris even one bit for crashing this party because that's what i would have done too imagine literally every other person in the world literally every other person in the world is invited to this one event and you are the one person who is not invited of course you're gonna crash that party of course you're gonna cause chaos even if even if i wasn't the literal goddess of strife and discord like i would be bitter I would think of some way to crash this party. But, yeah, so Eris's version of that is throwing an apple into the, into the wedding. And it's, she says that, you know, this apple is for the fairest. And what she means is the most beautiful. Um, Hygienus goes on to say that Juno, Venus, and Minerva claimed the beauty prize for themselves. A huge argument broke out among them. Jupiter ordered Mercury to take them to Mount Ida to Paris Alexander and bid him judge. Paris. This is where Paris comes back into the story. So, basically, what happens is that when Eris says that, you know, this apple is for the most beautiful... There are three goddesses at the wedding, Juno, Venus, and Minerva, and in Greek, those are Hera, Aphrodite, and Athena, and they all think that they deserve this this apple because they all think that they're the most beautiful, which also, like, I've never understood the any discussions about beauty or ugliness within gods because can't you just, like, shapeshift? Can't you just change your appearance? I mean, we know that Hera at least can Hera and Aphrodite both definite yeah all of them can change their appearance we know that for a fact um they're they're little they're literally gods of course they can so i don't understand why there are discussions of their inherent beauty but whatever we'll take it with a grain of salt um fun fact actually this is again a tangent but Apparently, the the um, the phrase "take it with a grain of salt" is actually a direct translation of a Latin saying, or maybe it was like it wasn't. I don't think it was a Latin saying, but we saw there was like some recipe or something for an antidote to a poison, um, and it said in the ingredients was one grain of salt. Another thing I learned from my Latin teacher. Um, so it's like, if you want to make an antidote to a poison, like the poison is the falsehood, and then if you take it with a grain of salt, if you take the antidote, then it's like the the falsehood doesn't actually have an effect because you you know that 
you know that you're you you're not taking it at face value basically isn't that so interesting I learn new things in Latin every day. Besides, you know, besides the Latin language, I also learn other new things every day. Um, my computer just shut down. I have to re-sign in. So, yeah. Um, they're all competing for the the apple. They're, are, they're all fighting for it. And eventually, Jupiter has enough of this. And he says, hey... Mercury or Hermes in the Greek. Take these three, I can't handle them right now, take them to Mount Ida to this random mortal dude, aka Paris, and have him judge which of them is the most beautiful. And I don't, again, this is another thing that just confuses me about this story. There's so many, there's so much there's so much stuff in myth that we always, you know, take with a grain of salt. But, like, when you really think about it, none of it makes sense. Because why... Because, like, why are you asking Alex, like, Paris to judge? Like, because right now he... I don't think he... Well, I guess he knows he's a prince of Troy. But he's not even a really important mortal. Like, he's the second son of Troy, who's right now being raised as a shepherd. Like, why are you, why, Jupiter, why are you choosing Paris out of everyone? Like, if you want a second opinion, just ask someone else at this bank, at this wedding. Like, I don't understand why you would choose. Because that's like, okay, that's like, if you were, if like, three of your classmates, or like, three of your coworkers, if you're an actual person with an actual job, um, are fighting over like, who is the most beautiful, and you're like, y'all... This is this is not an issue. You know what you know what we should do to resolve this issue? Um, how about we ask Joe Smith from Dakota, Ohio? I don't know if that's an actual city. Why don't we go there and ask him um and have have, have him judge which of you is the the most beautiful. Like it just doesn't make sense. Like anyway, we're moving on. <laughs> so, yeah, they ask Paris, like, which of us is the most beautiful? And in a lot of sources, they're actually... Well, I don't know if they actually say this in any of the sources, but there's a lot of paintings of this, and in all of them, the goddesses are all naked. So, again, take from that what you will. Um, and they go, these three goddesses go on to bribe him, um, I guess because their naked bodies are not enough for him to come to a decision. So, Juno, aka Hera bribes him with um ruling over like basically the entire world um because she's the queen of gods so i guess she has that power somehow i don't know um athena is the goddess i don't know why oh i keep saying athena like i don't say that normally but every time i feel like i keep saying athena like it's a like i it's it's just weird so athena because she is the goddess of war and wisdom, gives um, Paris a... She basically promises Paris that if he chooses her, she will give him bravery, skill in battle, wisdom, everything you need in battle, and also all the wisdom you need. Paris is not convinced by this, and I guess also he didn't really care about ruling over the entire world. Don't relate, but anyway. And the last one, 
Aphrodite, apparently this one really appeals to him because Aphrodite promises to give him Helen. None other than our queen of Sparta, wife of Menelaus, daughter of Tyndareus, most beautiful woman in the world. She, that's what she promises him. And heavens almighty, Paris says yes. And this, my friends, is... Well, actually, no, this is not how the Trojan War starts because something else will happen. But that's really... Like, this is the end of all the events that led up to the Trojan War. Now we're actually getting into the thick of the story. So, Paris somehow gets to Sparta. And somehow he emerges with Helen. Um, We're not really sure whether she got kidnapped by Paris or whether she went willingly. Um, Herodotus, 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 I don't know. Um, Herodotus, who is actually a pretty old dude, like, I'm pretty sure he was writing in, like, the 400s BC or something. Um, he says that after carrying Helen off from Sparta, Alexandrus sailed away for his own country. Um, oh yeah, and they go back to Troy. I, th- I thought that was kind of self-explanatory. I didn't really think I needed to say that. But now I realize that I probably should have. Um, so they go back to Troy. Um, Helen and Paris both go back to Troy. So Herodotus is saying that Alexander, a.k.a. Paris, a.k.a. Alexandros, because for some reason we romanize it as Alexander, but really in the Greek um, it's Alexandros. Um, Alexandros... He's saying that he carried her off, which in classics translation means kidnapped. Whereas our good gal Sappho, who is a poet from the Isle of Lesbos, and yes, that is where the word lesbian comes from, and yes, this is where the word sapphic comes from. Um, Sappho was even earlier in the 600s to 500s BC, so we are going back. Um, we don't have a lot of, a lot of Sappho's works have been like, they're fragmentary, so we don't have all of the words, but we do have a relatively complete, we do have a, we have, we do have a fragment, um, that says from Sappho, Helen, her most noble husband, deserted, and went sailing to Troy with never a thought for her daughter and dear parents. So Savo is saying that Helen went willingly um, with Paris to Troy. Which one do I believe? I mean, I don't know. I think that this is one of those things that's really up to interpretation. And it's something that retellers really do need to make a conscious decision about. And I think when you're retelling this part of the Tro- of the myth of the Trojan War, you re- it's this is a this is a decision that you're making um, when you're retelling when you're talking about this in a retelling. You need to pick a side. Did Paris and Helen go willingly, or did they not? And I'm gonna try and like point out like, really important decisions 
like this in in told episodes um so yeah this is one of these where you know you have to it's i think it's really interesting to pay attention to which retellings have um helen going willingly and which have her being kidnapped and it's actually kind of similar with the uh, persephone and hades story i think there's i mean that one is inequivocally almost all the ancient sources say that hades kidnapped persephone but also there are a lot of retellings where she goes willingly and i think it's really interesting to frame that in a different way but this is this one is one that's really really up for interpretation and there's no there's no like um there's no default position so it's definitely something that's really interesting to think about when consuming retellings so yeah and this is the event that actually sparks the beginning of the trojan war and that's i've decided to split up this episode into two parts um never fear you're still gonna get them at the same time so if you are there's not really any if you are but um so if you i guess if you want to um and you're looking for the um I don't know what I'm talking about. Once you're done with this episode, please go and check to uh, find part two because it will be out at exactly the same time. Um, but I just wanted to split it up into two because, you know, this is a solo podcast. Listening to one person talk for two hours is really boring. Um, so, yeah, uh, that is the end of that's kind of how the Trojan War starts. And in part two of this episode, we're going to go on to talk, I'm going to go on to talk more about the Trojan War itself. So, yeah, this is, well, I, I should probably put my links and stuff. Um, you, you know what? All the links are in the description. You're also, if you listen to part two, you'll also find them at the end of part two. So, I just, I'll just skip over that. Um, yeah. So thank you for listening to Retold, uh, or thank you for listening to this episode. Please go check out part two. Um, this has been Retold, and I'll see you in the next one, which, you know, for a lot of you, that will probably be right after this one. Um, yeah, thank you for listening. Thank you.